a little before bed commentary. I wanted to talk about <clears throat> the difference between social paranoia and personal paranoia. Because when we think about somebody who's paranoid, you know, not paranoia like big world events, crazy, like textbook conspiracy theories. I don't mean that kind of paranoia. I just mean, I, I think what I would call like normal people paranoia. I think what I call like normal people paranoia. I'm experiencing what, what somebody once called normal people paranoia. I think that's what it is though, but there, there are different shades to it. Cause you hear that somebody's paranoid or you like, you notice somebody being paranoid and we don't really break paranoia down further than that, but there's social paranoia, which this is, and it is, this is very common where people think that their friends are hurting them behind their back. A group of people could be their immediate family, friends, could be their community, just people, multiple people, a plural group of some kind is doing something to hurt this person. It's very common in friend groups. I wouldn't say every individual person in a friend group, but there's a good chance that in a group of friends, someone, probably multiple people, as much as they love these people, it's tribal. And like they're probably talking shit about some people, other people in the group are talking shit about them. And they might even be doing mean things behind that person's back, things like that. Like people worry about that. Like, like as nice it is, as nice as it is to have a group of friends, when you're a part of a group, suddenly it becomes a concern that, oh, like, I hope the group isn't talking behind my back. I hope the group isn't doing something to hurt me. And I remember this playing out a couple times growing up. There was a time in high school, there was a kid, he was from England. He was, he was the Brit. He was the British kid. He was the one kid in our school who had a British accent, really nice, sweet kid, still had the accent. He was very awkward, obsessed with Dave Matthews band, insanely obsessed with Dave Matthews. He would burn CDRs for people of various live Dave Matthews shows. Cause like every Dave Matthews show in history gets recorded by 50 fans. And so he was part of these early online file sharing networks where they just share like every Dave Matthews concert and he would burn them on CDs for people in school, obsessed with Dave Matthews. But he was very dorky and like, I, you know, I wasn't really, he was more of an acquaintance of mine. He was a friend of a friend. And there was a year where we ate lunch together. He, we all sat at the same table and we would rib him. We would give him what I'd call a light ribbing. You know, I wouldn't say we bullied him. I wouldn't say anything we did was mean-spirited. He just kind of invited it. Some people do that. It's primal, but it, it's real. And it's hard to resist. I've, even as an adult in workplaces and offices where everybody's very civil and educated, you can still feel this gravitational pull to certain people. Where it's like, oh, I want to kind of gently make fun of this person. And in part, like, you want people to do that to you. You know, because I've never minded if other people throw it back or start it. Like, I've never minded. I enjoy being... I, I enjoy somebody kind of breaking my balls. 
and I don't mind doing it. I enjoy doing it to other people. And when you're growing up, that's all you do. Like being a teenage boy means like busting each other's balls all the time. I mean, when I think back about me giving people a light ribbing, as I call it, I'm also flooded with memories of people ribbing me. And sometimes it hurt my feelings a little bit. Sometimes it hurt my feelings just a little bit. But ultimately, it was more like I wouldn't even say it hurt my feelings. You would just get kind of frustrated. You'd be like, oh, they're giving me shit. There's no way out of this. There's no way out of this right now. You just have to weather it. But it's learning to weather that that helps you. You know, growing up, like, one thing I feel really bad about with, with kids who don't have friends, with boys who don't have friends, is it's like not only do they not have that camaraderie and, you know, not only do they feel alienated and lonely, but they're missing out on actually the bad stuff of having friends growing up. And you need to go through that bad stuff in addition to the good stuff. It's not just like, oh, I, I wish I had friends so that I had someone to play toys with. I wish I could play toys with somebody. Yeah, that's great, having a friend. To, and, and then when you're a little bit older, like, I wish I had people to hang out with, go to the movies with, go on adventures with. You know, that sucks if a kid just doesn't have that. It really fucking sucks. But, uh... What they're also missing out on is like getting ribbed, getting mad at your friends. Because you, you, you find things you hate about the people you love the most. And the reason you're able to see those things you hate is because you do love them. Like the reason you're exposed to those things or you notice those things is because you're familiar. And familiarity breeds contempt. So of course you're going to hate things about your friends and see things about them that other people might not see and, and, and you know it's just the closer you are to somebody the more you're going to see their ugly side and the more they're going to see yours um but uh you know i think going through that ribbing process like i'm grateful that people gave me shit i'm grateful that i got mad and frustrated at my friends sometimes you sometimes you just didn't need it but the overall experience it's a process what that is is it's a process and learning how to deal with that is big but anyway Back to the British kid. We would do that to him. All of us would. And he wouldn't really do it back. I think that's what made him a little different. Is he was kind of dorky. We were never mean. It was just little things. Just little like breaking balls across the lunch table. But he wouldn't do it back, which is kind of interesting. Like he didn't know how to do it. But you know, I, I think he liked us. You know, I think he liked me. I remember having like good conversations with him. I respected him. I was I respected him. I did though. I respected him. I just gave him a little bit of shit. But there was one day where I just got really I became very self-conscious and sad because he got up to go to the bathroom or something at lunch and he took a few steps from the table and then he turned around and just made this announcement. And he goes, "I'm going to the bathroom." I've been told my British accent is terrible by a British listener, but so I'm going to the bathroom, but um, please don't talk about me while I'm gone. Going to the bathroom, please don't. I'll translate that into American English. I'm going to the bathroom. And then he kind of like put his arms out and kind of quieted his way. He's like, please don't talk about me while I'm gone. Please don't talk about me while I'm gone. And we all kind of laughed because it was funny. Because like, I mean, people do that as a joke. I've seen parodies of that. I've seen like, that's like satire or something. Um... 
But the reason why, like, like I've seen people do that jokingly is because that's a real fear people have. Like a lot of jokes, they're rooted in something real. And that's a real, that's social paranoia. Like somebody who's worried that when they get up to go to the bathroom, everyone at their lunch table is just going to talk about them. And I don't think we did that. Like we would give him shit when he was there, but I can't imagine talking shit about this kid behind his back because none of it was like a, like a criticism of him. Like none of the shit we gave him was ever like a deep cut that like we're, we're like – you know, it, it just, it, none of it was like that. It was just like little things. If he said something weird, we'd give him shit about it. But, uh, it was just, I felt really sad. I was like, shit. Like we all laughed about it. Cause we were like, that was fucking weird, but it made me feel bad. I was like, fuck, does he think we do that? Does he think like when we're just joking around with him that he get, when he gets up and leaves we're like, Hey, what do you think? Dude, did you see the British kid's shoes today? Look at those fucking shoes, man. Oh, man, like, when he gets back, let's take his shoes and let's throw them in the garbage. Um, you know, it's not like it's not like we were conspiring, but he he was worried. But that said, I don't think that he felt bullied. I don't, I don't think he... I think he just had this moment of social paranoia where it's like, oh, they, they sometimes give me a hard time, you know, when I'm with them. Maybe they give me a really hard time when I'm gone, like, and just telling us not to talk about him. But you know what? Him announcing that, that got us to talk about him while he was gone. Like, we wouldn't have had anything to say about him when he left if he didn't say anything. But because he announced that he was going to the bathroom and that he didn't want us to talk about him, like, that made us talk about him and joke about him. So it's just kind of funny. Had another experience earlier than that. Like that was high school. Another one I remember early on, I think it was like fifth or sixth grade. I had this friend who was, he was a very, it's the redneck kid that I sometimes talk about, you know, that his family taught me how to shoot guns and hunt. I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually kill anything or hunt anything, but uh, they, they just kind of introduced me to the pagan lifestyle of Washington state rednecks. But their son, who is my friend, he was he was a redneck and very blue collar and in, in some ways very tough and rugged, but very emotionally sensitive, like one of the most emotionally sensitive kids. Like I saw him cry more than any other kid for all kinds of reasons. He um, he would go through these depressions even as a little kid. He kind of had these occasional depressions, very like critical of himself at a young age like he, he threatened suicide in fifth or sixth grade i think it was fifth grade with his pellet gun like he called another friend of ours he's like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it and i think it, it might have been over a girl i mean because he was also like the first kid to start asking girls out like even before you kissed or made out with girls like when you just like held hands once a day he was that kid who was like already asking girls out, which is kind of weird. And he wasn't some kind of ladies man. He just, he's a pagan. He's a redneck. It, it, like the rest of us are going through this like existential dilemma over like when to start showing interest in girls and like how to talk to them. He's just like, will you go out with me? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> like, it's just that simple. It's like, there's no, he didn't overthink it. He just like, he hit, he hit puberty and was just like, I'm going to ask girls out even though nothing's going to happen for another five years, that kind of kid. But yeah, he was in like fifth grade. He called a friend. He was like, he was threatening suicide. That friend called me, but it turned out he had his pellet gun, which would have hurt him. You know, if he shot himself in the head with a pellet, it's, it's going to hurt you. 
and his family had guns, but he didn't have access to the real guns. But it was just, it was more of a show, you know, it was more like, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many little kids kill themselves, but it was very much about like the performance of like having my friend on the phone and him. It was like, it was like a cry for help sort of thing. And he wasn't abused or anything, but he was just very, very emotionally sensitive more than any kid I knew. And in fifth grade, there was a point like the same year, I guess, that he threatened suicide with a pellet gun. There was a time where like two friends of ours, we had like a free period where we were just like goofing off, playing games, drawing. And these two friends of ours went to the bathroom together. Like, obviously they're up to something. Like you don't go to the bathroom with a friend in elementary school unless you're gonna like throw paper towels, you know, and just goof off and joke around. There's no reason to go to the bathroom together. But two friends of ours had gone to the bathroom and the very emotionally sensitive pagan redneck came over to me he goes he was like eric eric go to the bathroom with those two with our friends he's like i want you i want you to go to the bathroom with them i was like what what like what, why and he was like i know they're going to talk about me i know they're talking about me and he was convinced this social paranoia had just overtaken him two of our friends had gone to the bathroom together which is obviously a conspiracy between boys. Like I said, you don't do that unless you're going to be doing something you shouldn't be doing, like throwing things, who knows, goofing off. But it's just that in his mind, he saw that. And while like two boys going to the bathroom together is certainly a conspiracy, he thought it was a conspiracy against him. Like he thought, like, like I remember seeing them, like as he said that, I saw them exit the room going to the bathroom and they were like giggling and laughing. Like, obviously, they had an inside joke. Like, my group of friends growing up, we always had some new inside joke for the day that we, like, whispered with each other. Like, we always had a conspiracy brewing. And, they, and like, if you're paranoid, if you're socially paranoid, I mean, this is, people, this is like a cliche where, like, somebody goes to a party and is feeling socially paranoid and they look around the room and, like, a couple people make eye contact with them and they, they see people kind of smiling or, or snickering. An innocent smile to a socially paranoid person can seem like they're making fun of me. They're laughing at me. That's what social paranoia is. Oh, I looked around the room and everybody at the party was laughing. I know they're laughing at me. I know they're laughing at me. So like I, I, when I saw my two friends leaving the room, I was like, oh yeah, they're giggling. They do look conspiratorial. But in this kid's head, in, the, in this emotionally sensitive pagan redneck in his head... He's just, he's like, those giggles are about him. Those smiles are at his expense. Whatever they're going to do in the bathroom, they're going to gossip and slander him. And I remember that it was an early experience in like, in seeing delusion because kids do talk shit about each other, but I don't think any of my friends were going to go to the bathroom just to do that. They'll just as well do it to the person's face. They'll just as well make fun of that person to their face. I just don't think my friends would have, would have asked to go to the bathroom together to talk shit about this kid. And I realized he was delusional because in his eyes, you know, his eyes were big. And I, I remember thinking like, he believes that. He believes that people are going to the bathroom to talk shit about him. It's like the British kid who was just like, just please don't talk about me. Hey, please don't talk about me. Please don't talk about me. 
Um, except this guy was like asking me to like be an undercover agent. He was actually asking me to go undercover. He was asking me to go undercover so I could hear whatever shit they had to say about him and report back. Like, well, they, they, they threw wet paper towels at the wall and then they said that you're fat. You're never going to have a girlfriend. You're, you're gay. You suck at working on cars. You're never going to be the man your dad is. And you're really sensitive. That's what they said about you. What does he want? What does he want me to like tell him that? Like you never want to know what people say about you. Even if it feels like you want to know, you never benefit from it. It reminds me of this. Uh, I was watching an old episode of the Dick Cavett show, late night TV host from, I guess, the 70s. And they had Marlon Brando on there. And this is right when he started like starting to express his eccentricity after The Godfather and stuff. And Dick Cavett, just to start out their interview, it was really wild. Like to start out their interview, and Dick Cavett, who I like, I like Dick Cavett, the little I've seen of him. But he just like, he read these newspaper headlines to Marlon Brando that, that were like gossip, like tabloid-esque ha- headlines criticizing him. He was like, well, well, the, 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 such, the USA Today says your new movie sucks and you're weird. You know, it was like, it was just, it was just like he read him these like scathing criticisms of the guy he's interviewing. And Marlon Brando was like, I don't know why you would tell me that. Like, I don't know why you felt the need to tell me what they're saying about me. Like, they're saying it, but I don't understand why you needed to tell me that. I understand that. Like, you know that there are people out there. Like, if you interact with enough human beings, especially if you're famous, you know there's people saying bad things about you. But it was just, you could tell Dick Cavett, like, in his mind, was kind of like, he didn't know what to say because he's trying to do a show. He's trying to to make the show interesting. But you could tell, like in his head, like something clicked. It was like, yeah, I don't I actually don't know why I was doing that. I actually don't know why I would just read awful, awful remarks newspapers have made about you. Because you know, because it's easy to get caught up in that. Like a lot of gossip is that way. Like people will tell, you know, people will, people will do that. Where they'll like listen to gossip and then report back to the person who's being gossiped about. And they're like, they said this, 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 and you, they said these things about you. And that's what that kid wanted me to do. He wanted me to go undercover and listen to his apparent critics in the bathroom and then report back to him what they said about him. And I realized he was delusional. It was social paranoia. But the truth is, I mean, like I said, it's not like that's baseless. Like people do talk shit about each other. Often it's your friends because they know you. And chances are you've talked shit about them. And, uh, but, you know, like, and and sometimes we get a glimpse of that unintentionally. Like, I've overheard people saying things about me that weren't flattering. And that isn't, I don't even take that to mean they don't like me or they hate me. Like, sometimes it's even been friends. Often it has been friends. You overhear something you're not supposed to hear. Something gets back to you. I think it's good for you. And if it's, if it's a bad enough, if it's, if it's bad enough, you know that you don't need to deal with those people anymore. But chances are, it's just like, oh yeah, that's the reality. We're all fallen entities and 
we say bad things about each other. And we do bad things sometimes to deserve it. But, but even when we don't, sometimes people say bad things about us. Sometimes it's the people who care about us, who love us, and we do that to them too. It's just, you got to keep that in check. You can't feed that, but it's like it's going to happen. It's just a reality. Like I can think, like I've overheard shit. I mean, I've seen things I wasn't, I, I remember seeing an email I wasn't supposed to see on accident. And it was literally two friends of mine talking shit about me in an email when I was like 14 years old. It was like when the internet was new and I, I accidentally was exposed to an email. I was shown an email where two people were talking shit about me. Two people who I hung out with a lot, two friends. And it wasn't even anything deep. It wasn't even any deep. They were just like making fun of me. And I remember being like, I'm never going to mention this to them. Because someone might confront somebody over that. They might be like, I, I saw what you said about me. Oh, my God. I just, I just like took it in and I was like, okay. But then I have to think about myself. And it's like, was I doing that to some degree? Maybe not through an email. But was I doing that at that point to them? Yeah. All three of us were doing it to each other. Like they were talking shit together about me. I know there were instances where I I talked to each of them about the other guy. You know, it's just, that's what you end up doing sometimes. I mean, those guys I think were particularly bitchy. The people I'm thinking of now, they were particularly bitchy. But still, like I mean, it was just one of those things where it's like, it is kind of your worst nightmare. Like that is what fuels your social paranoia is the reality that that does happen. That people do say things about you. People talk about each other. And so, you know, and, and that's a big fear for us. And some people are more afraid than others. You know, I, I've known a lot of young women who have severe social paranoia. I mean, who are ruled by it. And I think it does impact women differently. Where, like that friend who is worried about, like, the other friends going to the bathroom to talk shit about each other. Well, women are known for going to the bathroom together. And they're known for talking shit there. You know, women are, are more known for that sort of gossip. You know, I was talking about, like, growing up being a boy, one of the good things about having friends is the bad things, where you make fun of each other and you rib each other, and sometimes you get mad, and sometimes you fight and insult each other, and how that helps you along. And in the absence of that, the negativity doesn't have anywhere to go. Like, if you can't, like, let out a little of your inherent negativity by giving other people a hard time and them giving you a hard time, that negativity doesn't disappear. Like it, that negativity has to do something. And that's why we see gossip and slander and people do a lot more things behind their back. And that's, you know, these, I, I've looked, I've, I've looked into these studies. No, I've, I've heard about these studies that they've done on teenage girls and they find that teenage girls do that significantly more often than boys. While boys can be too aggressive, they can be jerks to each other, it's usually more overt. You know, my generation and anybody younger than me, like, hasn't, doesn't, unless you live in a really crazy area, you've never, like, really fought it out. Yeah, I've had little, like, physical skirmish. What the fuck, buddy? Talking about skirmishes. I've had, like, little, little skirmishes with friends and, like, gets physical and stuff, but never, like... I've never been in a situation growing up or to present day where me and another male have been like, let's slug it out. 
just not the time and place I grew up in. But you do let it out in other ways. You do get carried away sometimes like playing games. Like you do, you do shove each other a little bit and you insult each other and you, you let it out that way. But what's been, you know, what's come out about like teenage girls is that it's like, it's, there's far more gossip. It's social destruction. It's not a disagreement between two or three people. It's something that spreads throughout an entire social group. It it spreads through a larger body of people and it's done through gossip and slander and like conspiracy, like a group of girls, a group of girls conspiring against another girl. And as a result, like young girls, young women are terrified of that happening because it does happen. And women I've known well into adulthood, I've noticed a similar fear where they they seem to worry that other women are conspiring against them and in a way that's going to ruin their reputation and their standing in the social group. And I've seen women do this to each other. I don't think I don't think the nor I don't think a normal woman does this. But there are certain women who do and that's the they decide they have it out for somebody. They turn everyone else against them. They start spreading rumors like anywhere that girl goes. And uh, it can be very effective. You know, it, the mean girl syndrome. It can be very effective. It's a way that women assert themselves within their own pecking order. And I know from experience, just talking to women, that a lot of them fear this. And a lot of them have been more negatively impacted by it than they even have their interactions with men. Um, And I think a part of that too, it's not just that that's how aggression tends to play out, you know, more passively among women. It's also some of this social paranoia also comes from, I think women have a much stronger need for social consensus. I see this a lot. You know, I commented on here how if you look at the way women speak and write, they invoke we and our way more often. Like even just girls in relationships. Like I notice, I've noticed this. It's a big difference between women I know and men. When women are talking about doing things with their boyfriends or husbands, they'll say, we, we did this or we watched that. And they often won't even say who we is. It's just implied. Like if a girl at, at, at the office or a, a friend who's a woman, you know, tells you like, oh, last weekend we did blah, blah, blah. And it's implied that she's referring to her significant other. But I don't know men to do that. And when men do do it, I immediately think of it as feminine. And I'm not using feminine as a pejorative, just as something distinct from the way men act. Um... But it does feel a little weird when men talk that way because it's not the norm. But we, oh, we watch Stranger Things. Oh, last weekend we binge watched Stranger Things and we got takeout. Uh, It's just women frame things that way. Whereas like a male friend would be like, if he's talking about his wife, let's say my friend has a wife named uh, Kim. He'd be like, oh yeah, me and Kim watched Stranger Things last weekend. 
They'll say me and her. Like they'll they'll clarify that it's their wife they're referring to. Like a male friend won't say to me, like, oh yeah, we watched Stranger Things last weekend. Oh, we went to the beach last weekend. We went to the ocean. Maybe if they're like a family man or something, because it includes a whole family. There really is a we to that. But no, for the most part, it's like, oh, me and Kim did this. Me and Kim, me and Kim went to the beach. But women just have a tendency to be like, we, our. And you see that even in general writing. I've, I've noticed this with, with women, with, with editorials penned by women, where there's a tendency to write with this heavy sense of our. And there's that catchphrase, that internet catchphrase. I don't know if it's a catchphrase, but it's just like this language that like people who spend a lot of time online use where they say, are we doing this now? Since when are we doing this? Since when are we doing this? And like there, it, what's interesting about that and, and where that comes in, you see it on social media where they'll say like, since when are we doing this? And they're referring to like, a, like an article or something that says like, you know, like uh, Star Wars fans are, are getting, you know, their noses removed I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Uh, it's like, if there was an article that was just like, oh, people are, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. It would be something that's like a little bit outrageous and new. Like, oh, uh, adult, you know, adults are now wearing diapers in public. And somebody would like comment on that and be like, oh, are we, are we doing this now? But it's very, it's framed as we, and it's often women who use this, this sort of phrasing. And I just find that interesting because like in that moment, they're just kind of kidding around like, oh, here's something ridiculous. Are we, meaning like humans doing this? But what they're actually communicating is that like they see themselves as the group. And if people in the group are doing that, we are doing that. It's almost like did was a social consensus formed that we would start doing this? Whereas like I feel like a guy would react to that and say, Look at these crazy motherfuckers. Oh, look at these guys. You know, look at this guy. I don't know. It's just, there's very much this, this we and our plural framing. And I think women seek social consensus more and are more comfortable with it. And it's a good thing that women like, you know, it, it, like, like everything, it can go wrong. Like men being more individualistic, that goes fucking haywire all the time. Who's the biggest individual of all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most individual, individualistic person? <laughs> I, I thought that was going to be smooth. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most individualistic person of them all? Serial killers, pedophiles. So like being too individualistic isn't a good thing. Because serial killers and pedophiles and audiophiles, they take being an individual to the logical extreme, which is being an individual at the expense of everybody else's life well-being so individualism isn't a virtue in its own right but it can be very virtuous the same thing goes for you know collectivism and social consensus where social consensus goes wrong all the time all of the horrible things that groups of people have done throughout history came from social consensus gone wrong but we also need social consensus and the fact that women care more about social consensus is a good thing it's better than them not caring about it at all. 
And they actually encourage men to find social consensus. Like they encourage men to get along. Uh, they also encourage men to fight when they when when it comes to that too. But I've been at parties, I've been in social situations where there's like other guys that you don't really know. And a woman will be like, oh, hey, like, do you know so-and-so? And like, oh, he likes this. Like they establish kind of a consensus and they unite people and, you know, they're interested in that. They they understand that consensus is important. It's just like everything else. It can go haywire. And, uh, you know, but that social consensus too, it's like you see it with women even in the way they dress where women will openly and explicitly agree to dress the same and wear matching outfits. Last night, I, I Batty was barking at something out in front of the house, and it was it was like 11 o'clock at night, and there's not normally anybody out there at that time. And I looked out, and there were these two babes. There were these two young women, total babes, walking a dog. And they were both in similar pajama pants with matching midriff shirts. Like their stomachs were exposed and they were wearing pajama pants. You know, there was a different print on the pajama pants, I guess, but they were basically dressed like twins. And they weren't twins. They were just like two young, hot girls. Two young, hot girls. And I, just, I got a kick out of it. Like I, you know, I mean, they were babes, but I got a kick out of it because... I'm like, oh, yeah, they decided to do that. That wasn't random. Like, they both decided to wear midriff shirts with their stomachs exposed and matching pajama pants. Imagine if guys did that. Like, imagine if two guys got together and were like, hey, let's decide together to wear matching outfits. It'd be insane. I can't even imagine a friend saying that to me. Can't even imagine having that conversation. But girls do it all the time. I've seen them do it. I know them to do it. And there's no shame in it. Like, if guys did that, there'd be shame to it. If a group of guys were like, hey, we're, we're going out for your bachelor party. Let's all dress the same. Let's all get matching outfits. Like, yeah, you do it for a wedding or something. Like, the, you, you wear all the groomsmen wear matching suits, but that's different. Like, like, but just going out on the town or something, walking the dog. Like these girls, they were walking the dog, but decided to wear matching outfits. And just guys would never do that openly. It's not that guys don't dress the same or they don't follow each other's lead. Like I think about when I was in high school, my friends were all skateboarders. They were all like very serious skateboarders. But I've talked before on here about how at some point skateboarding went from like skateboarders went from being into like raw and heavy music into just being into like post rock and indie rock. And so this entire generation of skateboarders, they were like, they were getting into like Mogwai, 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 like this instrumental mellow post-rock. And then they were also really into all this indie rock that was going on at the time, just stuff I wasn't into. And then I noticed it too, because I would watch their skate videos. And like, I remember like the local skate videos, like when I was maybe like 12 or 13, and they'd have like Danzig, Misfits, they'd have Old Punk, they'd have like Iron Maiden, Heavy Metal. They just have that kind of thing, like like the stuff that, you know, Thrash Metal, things like that, Slayer. And then there was this shift, like when my friends came of age and like they got sponsored by the local shops and started showing up in skate videos, the music was always just like this really laid back, soft indie rock, indie music, post-rock. 
And so there was like this change. And those friends, they also, they all started wearing women's pants at some point. I don't know which one was even the first one. It kind of caught me off guard. These were good friends of mine. And at some point when we were like 16 or 17, you know, somewhere around there, they just start, they would go to thrift stores and go to the women's section and buy women's pants. And like the idea was like not to look like women, but those were the tightest pants. They wanted like super, super skin tight pants. And this is before the, the quote unquote skinny jeans thing got big. For some reason, that phrase just rubs me deeply the wrong way rubs me deep skinny jeans oh the, he's wearing skinny jeans oh look at him he's wearing skinny jeans just always hated that phrase but this is before they started making those skinny jeans skinny jeans they started making those skinny jeans for uh for men and so my friends i guess they, they were ahead of the curve and they were like well the only way to get our pants to look like that is to buy women's pants uh, I know they would sometimes go looking for them together. I think they would sometimes go to the thrift stores and they'd all be looking for a pair of women's pants to, to wear, but it kind of caught me off guard. I didn't judge them for it. I was just like, well, that's foreign. Cause I was still wearing ultra baggy clothes. I was still a, a fat fellow wearing big baggy clothes. Which was insane too. I mean, to be fair, like clothes got so baggy by the mid to late '90s and early 2000s that it was it was ridiculous. Like I think about some of the shirts and, and pants I had, and they were just so freaking baggy. And you can see where like the skinny thing, though. You can see where like my friends, they start they obviously started wearing skinny pants. Like one because that was some sort of indie rock fashion, but also because it was a rebellion against the bagginess. You know, it's what I always say on here about car models, like car designs, where it's like all of the car companies for five or 10 years design cars with rounded edges. Like for a while, they were making all these cars that were like, it was like they were trying to look like balls or something. Like some cars that look like they're trying to like turn it into a ball. You got to make it as round as possible. But then people get sick of the round cars. They get sick of rounded edges on cars. And then one company is like, hey, look at this really square boxy car. And people are like, oh my God, look at the box. Look at it. Look at it. Oh my God, it's so cool. And what makes it so cool is that it's not round like everything has been for the last number of years. And then that process keeps going. We're like five to 10 years later, it's back to the round cars. I think that's kind of what was playing out with my friend's pants. It's just like, it's just like the automotive industry. You know, I think my friends were kind of like, you know, everybody's wearing such like stupid. It's been like five or 10 years of people wearing super baggy shit. You know, what we're going to do, we're going to wear really tight shit. So I think they were kind of ahead of the curve, kind of rebelling against what was going on. And we can see where things have kind of come back. Like everyone was all into these, these tight fitting outfits for a number of years. And I was listening to like a barstool sports podcast or something where one of the hosts was like, oh man, it's so cool that baggy, that baggy is back in. He's like, I really didn't like having to wear like, like skinny jeans all those years. And it's just funny. Like that's a, that's a candid admission from this guy. Like he's admitting that like he just follows the social consensus because men do it too. They're just usually not that open about it. Like a guy's usually not going to admit like I'm wearing girl jeans because my friend does and I thought I would look cool. 
Like a guy's not going to be that explicit. And those two guys aren't going to have that conversation. Like a conversation isn't going to take place between my friends where one of them says, hey, you should really wear women's jeans too. And they're like, yeah, you think I should? Yeah, we look really cool together. We look really good. Like they don't have that conversation. It's just one of them does it. The other guys are like, hey, I think I'm going to do that too. It's more of like an organic process where you don't admit that you're just following the leader. Women, though, will like get together and be like, oh, we're all going to wear white jeans on Fridays from now on. I would make sure that your shirt's flannel and that you tie it in the middle, that you tie the ends in the middle of your stomach. You know, women will do that. Like, I remember girls coming to school like that. Like, there was actually a trend, because this is when pajama pants got really big. I was the, the, the first generation of people wearing pajama pants to school. I was right at the forefront of that. I never did it. But girls got really into that. Girls got really into wearing pajama pants to school. Not only did they get really into it, they would coordinate it. Like these hot girls that were outside my house last night. These hot girls, they were there for me. They were there for me. Um, no, but like those hot girls I saw, those hot, hot girls walking last night. Uh they would coordinate it even back in the, you know, like year 2001. They would come to school, like two girls who were best friends at the time would come to school wearing, they would both be wearing like white tank tops and pajama pants. So the, it, it was, it was like they'd formed entire groups of girls would do that. And they would often do it on the same day. So it's like they would call each other the night before or that morning and form this social consensus around like wearing pajama pants to school the next day. It's crazy. I could never imagine guys doing that. But the problem is guys do follow each other. Guys do copy each other. It is monkey see, monkey do. It's just that, like that, that individualistic, uh, that individualistic, whatever that is, that individualism inside of guys kind of screams at them. You just can't admit it. You're the adventurer. You're the explorer. You're on the front lines. Like men's ego really gets in the way of all that because men's are men's men's are constantly ripping each other off. Most people aren't original. Most people follow the leader, but men just have a hard time admitting they're doing that. So it's nice that girls admit it and coordinate it. But then it's, the bad side of that is just that like, they're also crippled by social paranoia. In the same way that girls get together to decide to wear pajama pants to school on the same day, they get together to like destroy another girl's life in whispers. Like girls will get together and like, if they all decided to wear pajama pants, but Megan wore jeans and didn't get the memo, they'll go to the bathroom together and talk shit about how Megan is wearing jeans and not pajama pants. If a guy doesn't go along with the social consensus and his group of friends, they're more likely to, just to be like, nice shoes. Like if, if a group of guys, like if they all love, um, for some reason, like my friends liked Vans and various like lesser known skate shoes, but they hated uh, Airwalks. Like Airwalks were seen as too generic, like too mainstream. They were, for whatever reason, they had it out for Airwalks. And it's like if all your friends are wearing Vans or other cool skate shoes and like you show up in Airwalks, 
They're just going to say openly to you, like, dude, look, he's in air, nice air walks, dude, dude, nice air walks, 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 nice air walks. Now, they're going to say nice air walks or something. They're going to give him a little bit of shit. Not horrible. It's not going to be a big deal. It's probably going to happen once. But girls, the difference is, like, they'll go together and be like, oh, you see she's wearing air walks? Yeah, she, you know, she's, she's just doing that because, you know, Oh, you know what she's trying to do by wearing those earwalks? You know, that's kind of how girls handle that shit. And, you know, it's, I'm obviously talking about, like, the malignant side of all this stuff. And you can decide what's better or worse. I mean, both go too far. Like, both ways of dealing with that shit go too far in many cases, but it's just how it is. So social paranoia. You know, I think we understand what that is. Like, you could be worrying about your immediate friends or family doing stuff to hurt you, but you might also be worrying about, you know, much larger groups of people. You know, we see that politically. Politics are filled with social paranoia. I mean, there's so much, I don't even feel like I need to go into it. You know, that fuels politics. But politics abstracts social paranoia. It takes social paranoia and it removes it from the immediate setting where it actually impacts you and turns it into an excuse to worry about things you can't control involving people who you don't even know. That's kind of how politics exploits social paranoia. It gets you worried about things that are just far outside of your immediate environment. And you have plenty to worry about as it is, because chances are, if you're a living, breathing human being, you have enough social paranoia about your immediate environment, about the people you interact with. You know, if you work somewhere, if you have friends, if, if anything, if you're involved in anything, you have enough social paranoia as it is. Even if you have it in check, you'll still have some because it's healthy to be a little socially paranoid. It's healthy to want so a little bit of social consensus. Like, I love that there's social consensus in the form of, like, I can trust that just about everybody in my neighborhood believes in the same basic way of life. Like, a social consensus was formed, and everybody in my neighborhood basically agrees to that. We all have our little piece of land. We all follow the rules of the road. None of us throws things at each other's houses. None of us steal from each other. None of us scream at each other. We're all operating with this kind of social consensus. They're like, this is the basic way we live. We might not agree on everything. We don't need, even need to know because the important thing is that we can all live on the same dang street and get along because we all follow the, ba the same basic rules, which were formed by social consensus. Yeah, there's also laws, but laws come from social consensus. Personal paranoia, that's another issue. That's, I think that's more what we think about, though. We often think more about social paranoia or, or personal paranoia. And I think men are more impacted by personal paranoia. Whereas I think women are more susceptible to like the idea that, oh, my family is talking about me. Because like that's what I'll hear from women, too. Multiple women I know will tell me like, oh, my aunt was having a conversation with my cousin who then like, like took it to my mom and they were saying this about me and how they don't think I should do this. Like I found that with female friends that like whether that's actually happening or not, it might be. 
but they're concerned about it either way. Like they're concerned that especially female relatives in their family are, are somehow like talking about them or disapproving of them. Whereas I don't know, I've never really known a, a male friend to say things like that. Like, oh, I think my uncle was talking to my dad and my cousin told me that my uncle thinks I'm doing this wrong. And you know, I just don't really know men to get into that. Men will have direct personal problems where it's like, oh, my dad. I had this conversation with my dad and you know, he doesn't get it. You know, I, I, and that's more of like that personal paranoia, like where this one person is doing things to hurt me. This one person is, is potentially causing me grief. That's more of the personal paranoia. That specific individuals are doing things. And I think that comes from men being more individualistic. Like, while a man doesn't like to be hated and mocked by his peers, social consensus isn't quite as important. And, you know, a guy can... A guy's ego can survive on his own individualism if he thinks he's better than everyone or something like that. And he can still function. You know, not that it's healthy to do that, but a guy can still function that way. A guy can funk a guy can say, like, hey, I don't get along with anyone. But he and like without being a psycho or a sociopath, he can still basically function that way. He can be a recluse. Whereas, like, I, I find that, like, a lot of women who have problems with the group have a very difficult time functioning. Like, it's very difficult for them to function. Not just because it's harder, maybe, for a woman to survive on her own, uh, or she has less opportunity to do that. I think it also just causes her much more internal grief to go through that. Whereas a guy's ego will be like, well, the reason that you don't get along with anyone is because you're, you're the best. They just don't like that you're the best. And he'll just go about his life. Not that that's a good way to live, but he'll just go about his life that way. But I think where you succumb, like where a man succumbs is through this personal paranoia. And just as like women I know have been ruled by social paranoia, like this fear that groups of people in their life are conspiring against them. Men are often worried about their individual relationships. They, I mean, one in one way, the level that men are paranoid about their significant other is just out of this world. The number of men who go through their life with this mantra all through the day, every day, is she cheating on me? 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 The cashier asks them for their debit card to pay and like, oh, here. And then their mind goes right back. Is she cheating on me? Is she cheating on me? Is she, are, you, are you cheating on me? Are you cheating on me? Are you, cheating? you know, the number of men who, who are just continuously thinking that, married men, men in relationships. And yeah, women cheat, men cheat. It is a val like one like like all paranoia. All paranoia is rooted in something real. You do have to worry about that in life. You do have to worry about infidelity. You do have to worry about lies and deception. But there are some men where it's like they could have the most loyal significant other in the world, but they're so paranoid and they're so insecure that they harass that girl nonstop. And like I, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who went through that, where it was just this guy, he couldn't control himself. 
She's not a cheater. She's not a bad person in any, you know, she's, she's never going to do that to this guy. But he was so scared of it to the point where like, he, this is going through his head every single day. And that leads men to go crazy. Like men will, will see things that aren't there. They'll start hallucinating infidelity. They'll kill their girlfriend. They'll kill themselves. They'll do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, that happened to a different friend of mine last month. He he uh, hired, like he hangs out at this bar and like some woman who hangs out at the bar, like, like another friend at the bar was like, oh, hey, she's a house cleaner. Do you need someone to clean your house? She's really good at it. So he hired this woman to clean his house a few times. He said she cleaned his house a few times. It was professional. He didn't really know her very well. He cleaned, she cleaned his house. And then he said she moved to another state. And then oddly, he said there was never anything flirty or weird. He just hired her to, to do a job and she did it. She cleaned his house. And this, this friend would be very honest with me. Like he's told me about shady shit he's done in his life. He's not hiding anything from me in this situation. He's just telling the truth. Nothing happened between him and this woman. She moved to another state. And then after she moved to this other state, he got a few messages from her where she's like, I miss your eyes. She was saying like she missed him and like they were, it was like this flirty, weird stuff. And he was just so confused and he didn't play into it because it caught him off guard. And then like fat, like fast forward a little bit. And one of his friends at the bar was like, oh, hey, do you know this guy so-and-so? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, he told me he wants to kick your ass. And he was like, what? And he's like, yeah, this guy, like he, this guy says that you fucked his girlfriend or his wife or whoever, whoever she is. And my friend was like, no way. Like I, and like the guy talked the guy out of kicking his ass, but it was just like somehow this guy got that impression and he never met the guy. Like he barely knew the girl, the woman, the girl woman. She, he, he barely knew the girl woman, but, uh, he barely knew them. And this guy's like talking about wanting to kick his ass. Cause he thinks that he did. He, he must, he must be imagining that she cleaned his house and did stuff with him there. And if you're that paranoid and you, you, you probably shouldn't date a house cleaner. You probably shouldn't be with a house cleaner if you're that paranoid. Cause it's like, you're imagining a porno taking place every time she goes anywhere. But then one night my friends at the bar, after all this came to his attention and there's this big group of guys who show up who he's never seen before. And he just felt like they were watching him. And my friend, he's not a paranoid guy. He's a very happy-go-lucky, friendly guy. He makes friends easily. But there was just this big group of like unknown guys, and he just felt like they were watching him. Like he felt like every time he kind of turned his head, like they were all just staring. And then he said one of the guys kept getting up and going inside the bar and then coming back out onto the patio, almost like he was pacing. And then he, he says that one of the times this guy did that, as he passed by my friend, he heard he heard the guy whisper like, like you better watch your back. Like some bullshit, some intimidating bullshit, like you better watch your back. And he was just like, what's going on? And then a, a guy who knows them both got there and then like told my friend, oh, that's the guy who wanted to kick your ass. And he was like, so his intuition was right. Those guys were watching him. The end of the night, he goes out to his car. The guy's left. At the end of the night, he goes out to his car and he found that like somebody had tried to break one of his side mirrors off. He said like they unsuccessfully tried to break one of his side mirrors off. 
he said they covered all of the wind he covered the windshield and all of the windows in some kind of oil i don't know what kind of oil but he said it was like it was almost like some kind of oil almost like it was designed to make it hard to drive like to get to force you into an accident or something and then he said that the handle on the driver's side door had been completely broken off and he knew that guy did it he didn't end up doing anything about it he didn't end up like calling the police or anything maybe he didn't feel like he had proof but keep in mind this all came about because my friend hired this guy's girlfriend or wife to clean his house and she did a few times nothing happened she left the state so he sends him these weird flirty texts that he doesn't play into and then somehow maybe i my only guess is that the boyfriend read those text messages because guys will do that guys are insane they're absolute maniacs who will just read their girlfriend's phone i know women do it to men too they'll read their boyfriend's phones but you know a man will just grab a girl's phone out of her hand sometimes or if a girl's like texting too much in front of him he'll go who are you texting who are you texting you know that paranoia kicks in she must be texting a man and so this guy obviously must have read the, the text and assumed something had happened. He sees his girlfriend, maybe drunkenly, who knows what condition her brain is in, sending this guy she worked for like flirty texts out of the blue. He must assume something happened. So he damages my friend's car. He hallucinated all of that. That's how scary men are. He hallucinated all of that and wanted to hurt another human being and damage that person's property. It's just insane. I'd call that personal paranoia. It's like he's, that guy probably goes throughout his whole life being like, is she cheating on me? 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 It's like a song. It's like it loses all of its words and meaning. It's just like, it's just, this like punctuated it's like it's like a punctuated uh hum it's like a punctuated hum it's like it's crazy some of the stories i've heard from women i know the level of paranoia and then because some women do cheat it's like there's all the proof you need that's what fuels it because people do cheat, it justifies being insanely paranoid your entire life. And I've noticed, like, like one, one friend of mine, a woman who was with a guy who was just insane about that shit, he had been cheated on. So it's like his brain got melted. His, his ex-wife or his ex-girlfriend cheated on him. His brain just melted at that point. And all that's left, like every time he dates a new woman, it's just like, is she cheating on me? 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 It's fun. So that guy's brain is just like the, these, those words just repeating. Ain't easy. It ain't easy being a person, but you got to not do that stuff personal paranoia you know people do go through their lives thinking that i mean it's what you see when it's like it's that feeling you get and it's it's a natural feeling but you have to fight it where like it's like if someone cuts you off in traffic 
it's very difficult for you not to feel like it's personal. When someone cuts you off, your immediate reptile brain says they plan to do that just to fuck with you. That reptile in your brain says they cut you off just to fuck with you. And that's your ego too. React. Don't you have some honor? Don't you want to maintain your honor? You got to give him the finger. You got to react. Aren't you going to react? That person's trying to hurt you, and they planned it. When they woke up today, they came up with a plan. They said, right before this intersection, I'm going to cut Eric Stonefeld off and force him to slam on his brakes and get upset. I've been planning on this for months. You almost feel that way. You're like, they must have, you're paranoid. You think that this was deliberate. So it's not just with the individual people you know. It's just when an individual person inconveniences you. You think that it was done to you personally. You think you almost think it was planned that way. And you got to trick yourself out of thinking that way. It's, it's a boy who cried wolf thing. Because it's like, at some point in your life, someone is going to conspire against you. They are going to try to screw with you. They are going to do something mean to you or bad on purpose. But if you go around thinking that that's what the world is doing to you, that that's what everybody is doing to you when you have a bad interaction with them, well, you're going to be less prepared and you're, you know people aren't even going to believe you when someone does do something. And people who do have a, a lot of personal paranoia, it isn't just a one-off event. It's Chances are it's everything in their life. Not, you know, every time somebody doesn't do what they want, you know, with some people, it's like anytime somebody doesn't do what they want, it's personal. It's by design. The only thing I can figure with paranoia, you know, it's what I've said about con- conspiracy theories before. Paranoia and conspiracy, it gives people a sense of comfort in a very strange way. They're imagining horrible things happening to them. They're imagining people and forces out there in the world conspiring against them. But you can't help but feel that it gives them a sense of comfort, like, this is all by design. People are fucking with me, but it's all by design, so it gives me a sense of safety. It's almost like the guiding hand of God is in there somewhere, and this is meant to be. Even though it sucks for you, it's meant to be. Someone's at the steering wheel. And I think that's what I've said about conspiracy theories is I think one of the the deeper attractions of conspiracy theories is it makes people feel like someone's in control. And even though conspiracy theories are based on the idea that the people in control don't have your interests in mind and they're terrible pedophiles, audiophile pedophiles trying to kill you and enslave you, there's at least some comfort in knowing they're controlling the steering wheel. It's like, at least I know there's a driver in the driver's seat. Because the alternative is far too scary. And I'm in the middle on that stuff. I think there's just chaos swirling around. You know, it's like one of my favorite quotes I always bring up on here. Zbigniew Brzezinski. You know, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. 
I think it's both. You know, there's obviously constant conspiracy taking place. There's good conspiracies, bad conspiracies. There's a, a heck of a lot of conspiracy. But a lot of conspiracy comes from people trying to manage all of the chaos. It's kind of in reaction to how chaotic things truly are and can be. And just believing things happen chaotically and that history wasn't designed to happen the way it did, that nobody has a master plan, I don't know. I think that it gives people more comfort to imagine there's someone who does, even if they're terrible people. And it also gives you something to fight against. You see where people who are really into conspiracy theory, and not th this new politicized butchered definition of conspiracy theory that they've been using since COVID, I'm talking about just like what we would call traditional conspiracy theories, like 9-11, JFK, aliens, CIA, you know, all that stuff. It gives people meaning because they now feel like they're fighting against something. Like every conspiracy theorist, like it feels like they're fighting against horrible, evil, you know, just these massive hordes of evil everywhere. Like they actually feel that way. It's like, oh, I need to tell people about, you know, how, I don't know. I need to tell people about how there was actually a bomb in the Pentagon and a plane didn't crash there because 9-11 was, was done by design by the Bush administration. I need to tell people about that. Uh, and just telling someone about that makes me a hero. Conspiracy theorists are often kind of failed heroes. Where it's like they're not doing anything truly heroic in most cases by sharing information. Like whether I agree with it or not, or I think it's interesting or not, like I'm it's it's not typically heroic to just like send files to each other and read things. Can be heroic, but you know, it's just it's just not. But they they all kind of want that. They all want to feel like they played their part. Like I knew I worked with somebody who had dogs and she used to say to her dogs, like, oh, you're helping. Like, if her dogs would just be in her business, like, she's trying to get something done and her dogs would be bugging her, she'd just be like, oh, you're helping. Thanks. Just, like, patting the dog on the head, making it feel like it was doing something to help. I kind of feel the same way about conspiracy theorists, where it's like, generally, they're doing nothing. And all you can really do is, like, like pat them on the heads like dogs and just be like, you're helping. Meanwhile, it's like, just, it's busy work. The shit conspiracy theorists spend their time on is often busy work. Which is exactly what the conspirators want. They're giving all the conspiracy theorists a bunch of busy work to distract them from what's really going on. That's my, my conspiracy theory is that all of the available information on well-known conspiracy theories was actually distributed by the conspirators themselves because that's just superficial crap that'll keep all of the interested parties busy while they do what they're really planning to do. But you can see where that's very paranoid. I mean, if we want to get into like the social paranoia of like what the government is doing, I mean, I think that's founded. 
I mean, I, I don't see how you couldn't be a little bit paranoid about that. You don't want to be so paranoid that it impacts your life. I, I'm not even going to get into that here, of like being paranoid about the government and these huge forces. Because you can go too far with it. But again, I think, I think it's natural to fear that stuff. I think it's natural to be cynical about that stuff, especially when we know what we know. But what really gets us, like, I don't think that those sort of conspiracies ruin the average person's life. I don't think that stuff brings down the average person's well-being. Now is a different story because everybody's gotten sucked into their own worlds of current event fan fiction conspiracy theory. Like, leftists are, leftism is just filled with conspiracy theories. They're pushing all kinds of bullshit. They believe all kinds of nonsense that isn't even backed up by any data. Like, they'll reference data, and when you actually look at the source, it says something completely different. They're just making up shit. People on the right wing do the same thing. Not to play both sides, but it's just, you know, it's what people do. They make up a bunch of bullshit. They have their own bogus theories. And, uh, but, you know, that stuff, I don't think it brings down the average person's well-being. Like, now might be a different story. We've entered a new chapter of the information age where people are so consumed by a nonstop stream of insanity that it does seem like everybody's lives are negatively impacted by political conspiracies that may or may not be true. But I think what brings down the average person's life more than that is the personal paranoia and the immediate social paranoia. I think those are the things that make someone's social existence and personal existence in you know just unmanageable in some cases. They're so worried about what other people think and what other people are saying about them. They are so worried about this external judgment and this gossip that just kind of floats around like the wind. And you just got to hope that it doesn't catch you. And it's not a 50, it's not a 50 mile an hour wind of gossip that just carries you away and ruins your reputation forever. You just have to hope that it doesn't overtake you. But we live these lives where we're worried about that, that people are always out to get us. People are always talking about us. The people we love the most are the people coming up with strategies to hurt us the deepest and then you, you get married and you, you sign a contract devoting your life to somebody. But every time that you're allowed to think, your brain says, is she cheating? 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 You know, so annoying. But it's like that's what your brain is doing in your downtime with the person that you've committed to spend the rest of your life with. You know, it's like even in families and stuff, like, oh, my brother is managing the family estate after my parents died. And I think that he's pocketing the money. Oh, I think he's going to sell the cabin and keep all the money and not tell us. You know, it's like even shit like that rules your family life. Like the people in my life are doing something to me, either as individuals or groups. I mean, that's what gets people. And when I talk to friends... And think about myself and like when you're really feeling hit by shit, hit by shit, 
when you're really feeling like like life is hitting you and like or just like not even that like not even when life just hits you hard but just think about the stuff that p- most people complain about most of what people complain about is this it's like what their friends are doing it's it's what the people in their lives are doing or what they think those people are doing or what they think those people's intentions are cuz i mean we haven't even gotten into that and i don't think we're going to dive too deep cuz i need to go to bed but so much of this social and personal paranoia doesn't just come from what you think people are doing it comes from what you think people's intentions are you see this in the way that people react to text messages Every once in a while a friend will say to me like, "Oh, I got this text message from my aunt or my brother or or my girlfriend or my friend." And like, "What do you think they meant by this?" I think they meant I think they meant the meanest. Like they read this like ambiguous text from someone in their life and they're like, "I'm going to assume this means the worst possible thing it could mean. That they're intending this to be just a stake to my vampire heart." Then they show you the text and it's like so innocent. And like, yeah, maybe you don't know the the deeper nuances or history, but it's like, I've had that experience where they're like, look at what she sent me. Can you believe that? She means, she said this, but she means this. I, I know how she talks. And then you read it and it's like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, we should catch up soon. And you're like, there's nothing to read into there. But someone's personal paranoia has turned that into like, she hates me. She fucking hates me. She hates me. She hates me. Oh, fucking God. She hates me. It's like it'll turn people's, people's minds into just putty. And a lot of it's paranoia. But, uh... There's social paranoia and there's personal paranoia. I think these manifest differently in men and women. I think they they have a function too. It's not that they're all bad. Like most things. Like most things have a good function and a bad function. Like most emotions. Most emo- emotions have a good function and a bad function. Paranoia, I don't know that you call it an emotion... But uh, it'd be it'd be cool if it was. It'd be cool if paranoia was an emotion. I'm gonna I'm just gonna consider paranoia an emotion. Like when did we decide that the emotions were we already have them all named? When did that happen? Oh, we've named all of the emotions, and these are the only emotions. When did we decide that? I think paranoia should be an emotion. I think paranoia is an emotion. But uh, you can see that it impacts people emotionally. Because what I'm talking about here is emotional. Personal paranoia and social paranoia are a very emotional thing for people. And that's why I say that I think it's that sort of paranoia that negatively impacts people far more than whatever their paranoia is about the government or these larger groups or these world forces I think it's that personal and social paranoia that they experience on a daily basis, not just because it's there and it's immediate, but because it is so emotional for people.
Children can.